At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane! Man is evil! Capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher. As a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Welcome, everybody, to AB Live. Welcome to a very special show. Even though in this world, men still have nipples, and there are 43 species of parrots. I don't know if that's right. But welcome, everybody. And for those of you who might be listening on audio, uh, by the time you're hearing this... Uh, I usually have a little intro, but not this time, just the quick music, different than the YouTube and other channel audio, but I thought we would just jump right into it without you guys having to listen too much to our drivel and lots to talk about tonight and lots of things to cover. Uh, I guess I should say happy tax day, whatever the hell that means, but yes, today is, I believe, the 18th tax day. And, uh, of course, all taxation is theft. What, uh, what's the t- statistic here in the United States? You have to work three months for free to pay your taxes. I think in Europe it's like four months. And as you can see, I'm sure when you think about it, you might be wondering, where does me working like a slave for three months, where does all that money go? That is the great question. And I certainly don't have a good answer if you'd ask me. But so, yeah, happy tax day, happy day of Mars and day of tear. So very cool. See everybody already flooding into the chat section. As always, if you have questions, please um, super chat them and uh, we will get to you and we'll keep an eye on the uh, on the chat room so we can see what a the thematic chaos, Dionysian mayhem that might be going there. So as always, it's very awesome to have my friend, collaborator, colleague, 
and old pal Graham Pong at the Virtual Alexandria. Graham, how are you doing? Very good, Miguel. It's always wonderful to be back here and see you in Vance. And Isn't this is... I want to say thank you because this is this is a special one for me. This is a tribute to my math mentor, uh, Dr. Hilton's hundredth birthday. So, thank you. Awesome, yeah, on the eighteenth. Sorry, it's tax day, but uh, a good celebration. And yeah, we're going to delve into this very fascinating figure and everything else that goes into it. Uh, and with us too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? I'm just fine. I'm interested to hear the uh, personal slant on all the code breaking stuff so a tech unusual technical subject for eon byte yeah yeah but i'm sure we can get into some of the more esoteric fun i guess fun stuff of the nazis because <laughs> the villains that just keep on giving so so awesome uh i don't think we have some announcements to make but that uh, can wait Towards later in the show, uh, great shows uh, be great shows coming up. I think on Friday we will have Mr. David Block give us the third part of his four-part series on these enigmatic gods like uh, Lucifer, Prometheus, Azazel, and so forth. He's going to be tackling Belial, uh, who is of course, who is the villain in Philip K. Dick's The Divine Invasion. And, of course, an infamous uh, bad guy and demon. Oh, Grandpa keeps getting uh, taken by the Nazis. I wonder what's going on. So um, what else? And then next week we've got a very cool uh, a UFO documentary that's coming on. Uh, we'll talk more about it. And you will definitely be talking to the filmmaker and the director of it. So, yeah, a lot of good stuff. Eduardo Cano will be coming on to discuss his new book, on consciousness and the simulation so very relevant aeon byte content so lots of good stuff and i appreciate those who are supporting and keeping this red pill cafeteria growing and the lights of the pleroma on so grandpa what's going on you keep disappearing is this sort of nazi code taking you down Oh, it's either that or the Archons here. Uh, Always the Archons, yes. (laughs) Always the Archons. No, no. Hopefully uh, my connection challenges won't be a problem. I'm glad I got you uh, my slides earlier so you can handle that end of it. Good deal. Well, did you pay your taxes? I mean, the IRS did put, what, 600 more agents? They should have all your money. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, is it even money anymore? Aren't we going digital? So <laughs> that's the that's the end game of the of the archon. Speaking of, get us on digital, centralized. So uh, it's uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite the racket. And of course, I was talking about taxes. Uh, trust me, the 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 elite, the one percent, the Karens and Katamites of the establishment, they're not working three months worth to give away their taxes they're making sure this is on the back of the middle class and the poor people as it always is so. i was gonna not say to my com go ahead Lan- not to go mention ahead, the dogmites <laughs> <laughs> indeed i was gonna say i think most of the one percent don't actually work so there's <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah there's no taxes to pay so they've already got the slave class or uh but a Nietzsche call it the slave mentality of the population. Yeah, yeah. No, so uh, I'm ready to dive in whenever you guys are. 
All right, all right. I think uh, everything's there. Everything's ready to go. I just wanted to give a little breathing room so everybody can get settled in the chat room or who's getting behind their uh, device. So let's get started. I guess we should start. You want to start with the presentation or talk a little bit about your uh, mentor? I was going to say, why don't we just put put my uh, that opening screen of my presentation up there, and then I'll just start talking about him. All right. Let everybody, yeah. let everybody see the man himself. You got it. There we have a picture of Dr. Peter Hilton, April 7th, 1923. He was born and November 6th, 2010. And that's a picture from the Guardian. Yep. Yep. And I was going to say that that's a good, that's a good shot of him. And uh, I was going to say now people pretty much know more about him than I knew when I met him because <laughs> I met him in, uh, it was either late 2001 or early 2002 when they were doing a, uh, a seminar at, at University of Central Florida down here in uh, category theory, which was a is a really esoteric um, uh, field of math that it's an all, it was being used as an alternate for uh, foundations of math as, as an, an alternative to set theory. And I've been working on a project for, I don't know, probably about 20 years by that point in time, dealing with uh, foundations of math, set theory, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, the Church-Turing thesis, all that sort of stuff. And it's like I really is kind of tough. I didn't, I wasn't able to figure out category theory on my own. Saw the seminar, and unfortunately, the seminar was at a time when it was during my work day. So. I gave a call to uh, UCF to his office and a uh, little comedy of errors. He had moved the time on the seminar and thought that I was able to make the first time. So he felt committed to, to uh, try to get me to learn category theory if he could, since he moved the time on me. So he said, come in and meet with me for an hour. So I went in and we just hit it off from the beginning. We were, um, he was explaining to me, he wanted to test, see if my, what my mathematical knowledge was, see if I was going to be up to learning on it on my own. And he started in there and he started talking about casting out nines. And he was say, saying how that was a different procedure to check your, your work on stuff. And then I, I explained to him, yeah, because it uses an entirely different method, which was exactly what he was going to go into. And then he had a joke about, you know, one plus one equals two on average. And it was a, about <laughs> estimation theory and all that sort of stuff. And I sat there and said that I had learned that from, you know, my science classes where that was uh, digits of precision and stuff like that. And he goes, oh, no, no, it's based off of math. And then, you know, we're talking back and forth and he was asking me what my project was. And I explained to him and, uh, you know, we were talking about that when I was talking about the church Turing thesis. I asked him, I, I mentioned that I had found a structural flaw in the Turing test. And I, you know, I, I explained and he goes, what do you mean? And I explained that it's what the Turing test actually is involved with is testing to see if a human can identify another human. Because I've seen it run where the human just the person just swears that, that that that's a computer on the other side, even though it's a human. And it's basically it, it presumes the idea that humans can identify sentience when they see it, as opposed to some internal structure for sentience. And he sat there and he listened to me. He goes, "You're right." And he said, "No, he never did," in a really wistful manner. Uh and then I went into about how the awful things, you know, British government did to Turing because he was gay. 
And then he, Dr. Hilton, in a very measured tone, said, what the British government did to Alan Turing was the greatest evil ever promulgated onto the future of mankind. Because of, he was only 41 when he died and just all of what he was going to contribute to the world. And we kept going back and forth on a few other things. And at the end of the hour, he said, you're truly gifted in mathematics. And I have no doubt that you can learn category theory from me. How do we go about getting you credit? And I said, credit? I don't need any credit. I just want to learn the material. Then he laughed and he said, well, if you don't need any credit, I don't need any payment. So we just, <laughs> so he basically just gave me a free three-year apprenticeship to just teach me whatever math that I wanted. Cool. And we, we became very, very good friends, just spent a lot of time together. And it was only afterwards I learned that he was Turing's best friend and he did all the code breaking and all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, we, yeah, he was British. <laughs> we can go on to the next, next slide. Sure. Yeah, no, this is, uh, he's talking about how he gets into math here. And, uh, you know, when he was 10, he got, you know, not, he, he was, he was, he was in an accident. And when he was in the hospital, they basically, his leg was in a cast and he used that as like a blackboard. And he found out he just really, really dug math. And it's just, that's, that's what he was into for the rest of his life. And the second one is, is a really, really nice quote, you know, that, that he explains about, uh, you know, about him as a teacher. And it's, you know, just as any sensitive human being can be brought to appreciate beauty in art, music, or literature, so that person can be educated to recognize the beauty in a piece of mathematics. The rarity of that recognition is not due to the fact that most people are not mathematically gifted, but to the crassly utilitarian manner of teaching mathematics and of deciding syllabi and curricula in which tedious routine calculations learned as a skill are emphasized at the expense of genuinely mathematical ideas in which students spend almost all their time answering someone else's questions rather than asking their own. And he oh. was just a phenomenal teacher. And, uh, Very you know, Pythagorean, was, huh? Oh, I was going to say he had a lot of uh, Epicurean in him as well. Okay. <laughs> As, as we're going to get to coming up here, because he, he was a very, he knew how to enjoy himself. He was, uh, he was definitely a character. So, uh, you know, we, we, can, we can go on to the next one. He, he ended up, he was, you know, basically in uh, getting out of high school in uh, what would be high school in the U.S. in 1941-42, uh, right in the middle of World War II. And he was uh, in a situation where he was basically going to be working for the Royal Artillery doing calculations in order to arm, you know, aim, aim guns better. And it was just basically, you know, wrote calculations for him. And his uh, advisor at, at his school sat there and saw an opening in, in the foreign office. And they were looking for a mathematician who knew, um, who knew European languages modern European languages, and he'd been teaching himself German for a year. So he tried out, you know, so he basically applied for it, and he ended up getting it. You can go on to the next slide. Uh, yeah, and it says here he was run over by a Rolls Royce. <laughs> Even the lead back then were trying to take out the good ones. <laughs> ah, it's better than being run over by a Jeep like Patton was. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> 
you know, and it's so he ended up he was the only one who showed up at the at the interview and they gave him basically gave him the job. And when he reported into uh, Bletchley Park, he was he was taken to Hut 8, which was where Turing was working. And they were working on uh, breaking some codes at the time. And the first thing Turing asked him was about chess and was wondering if he played chess and would, you know, was wondering if he had some problems they could solve. And they ended up being basically chess buddies and played, played for the rest of their lives together. And, um, you know, there's a pretty quote, good quote there from him that talks about, you know, what he thought about touring. And it says, you know, Alan Turing was unique. What you realize when you get to know a genius well is that there is all the difference between a very intelligent person and a genius. With a very intelligent person, you talk to them, they come out with an idea, and you say to yourself, if not to them, I could have had that idea. You never get that feeling with Turing at all. He constantly surprised you with the originality of his thinking. It was marvelous. Very no, cool. Yeah, no, that, that's where he, he started with the uh, working on the, uh, the, the code breaking during World War II, and... Again, he was he never talked about much of that with me. Again, I think part of it is he had just been so trained to do so because of the Secrecy Act. Mm -hmm. And it was only, you know, a few years earlier that that you hit that 50 year mark and you could talk about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, he uh, you know, he talked about some, some, you know, the one thing that he did talk about. And that's on the next page we can go to. So. Page four. Peter Hilton at work and at play. Yeah. Yeah. So basically it was one of those where he is one of the world's greatest human beings ever at creating palindromes. Those sentences that go the uh, same way front and back. Right. And uh, let me see. No, the one he came up with is... Uh, Doc, note, I dissent. A fast never presents a fatness. I diet on cod. And up until, you know, really computers started getting involved, that was the longest palindrome anybody had come up with. Wow. And, and he explained to me how he did it. And it was basically he would divide his consciousness into two parts. And he'd have each part working the sentences from each end and, you know, playing them off against each other. And, you know, I was able to do similar stuff. And in that way, so it was, it was kind of neat because we were, you know, interrelating with each other about how we think and how we create and things like that. And it was just he was, he was such a great, great teacher and great educator for me. But, you know, back at go ahead. Go ahead, Miguel. 51 letter palindrome for those who are curious. Yeah. And uh, when he was at Bletchley Park. Yeah. No, he was a uh, he was a big drinker. He was he was big at the pubs. Always told, told dirty jokes, body jokes. You know, he was just, <laughs> well, he was like 18 and uh, hanging around with professional mathematicians. He was, he was, he was totally out of his depth and he was just enjoying it, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he would have been kicked out of the U.S. Army today. <laughs> Not politically <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, no. And that's, that's what Meg, his wife, um, he met her through the theater. She was big in the British theater and, you know, that was, uh, you know, she was, she was, she was definitely something they, they, they were a match pair. Yeah. 
she was she was really sharp and really good. I I didn't never got to met, meet a son Timothy. I got to meet a son Nicholas. But uh, no, I was going to say in the Bletchley Park one, it was you know there's there's so many things to, to talk about there. Like you know, you know you got the whole m machine working. You have uh, so much that 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 touring was going with and going in that one. And like I said before, it's uh, a lot of that has been explored a whole lot. I'm happy to talk about what I know about that because most of what I know I've gotten out of books as well. Mm. And what does it say? He and he did not use paper, pencil, or composing, but lay on his bed, eyes closed, and assembled it mentally over one night. It took him five hours. That's a palindrome. Wow. Yeah, and that—that that was why I was talking about where he split his consciousness. He just laid back and, like I said, split his consciousness. It was running it, the sentence up from both ends to the middle at the same time. And it was a game that they would play there. And again, that goes with the code breaking. You, you know, they were trying to, you know, stretch their minds and do all sorts of stuff. But they used to have palindrome contests going back and forth, and that was the one that won it for the, for the whole time of Bletchley Park. Wow, impressive. Very impressive. Shall we go to slide five? Yeah, go to slide five. Here we are, Peter Hilton career, and that's quite a resume. Yeah, no, no, he, um, yeah, he, one of the things that, that you'll notice there is he ended up leaving England pretty much at right after uh, Turing was killed. And that was pretty much what he, uh, the, the opinion that, that he, pretty much left me with was he was the opinion that it wasn't uh, wasn't suicide and it wasn't an accident that it oh, was right. um, it was the British government that uh, that that did it to him and um, yeah that's one of the reasons why he never ever accepted any award from the British crown never got a knighthood OBE none of it and uh, yeah now he he gave a good line when when he, he explained to me that what he told people when he stepped down because when he was at the uh the mason chair of pure mathematics that's basically a lifetime position that's like an end of career position and he his line was he was leaving the position in order to let a much older man take it <laughs> <laughs> Because, yeah, because, uh, you know, that's usually a position you get when you're up in your 60s and 50s and 60s. And here he was, you know, in his 30s. And uh, now he, he just wanted he, he never went back for a permanent position in England. It was something that, again, it's, he thought what happened to Turing was the greatest evil ever. So. And for the audience who might not know, Turing was it, it wasn't. Is it really just because he was gay? There had to be more than that. Well, what I mean, I've... The evil empire will look over these things if <laughs> if they can get a good uh, good cog in their wheel. Well, that was one of the problems is touring wasn't any sort of cog. <laughs> he just, he <laughs> was, was going to be touring and doing his thing. As, right, as, yeah. as they say, he was just too innocent. He didn't realize that he couldn't say those things or do those things. Yeah, he was a he wild card. You know, and the other one that I found out since Dr. Hilton died is I've been looking some into the research he was doing in the biology and 
that stuff is it's still cutting edge these days they're still trying to catch up with what he was doing Mm. and you know that could have been one of the ones where he was just pushing too far in that direction and you know can't have anybody pushing the envelope too far no no kidding you know again it with the uh his stuff in the biology is well worth uh, worth looking into. I'm still still trying to sort through it. One of my back burner projects, but uh, no, it was, it was nice to see that it wasn't just the homosexuality. But uh, even the homosexuality is no excuse. Oh, of course not. There is an excuse. Yeah, agreed. Well, hopefully his work didn't end up in Wuhan lab or somewhere like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's somebody else's stuff. So uh, <laughs> exactly, you have plenty of this stuff being worked on, and yeah, what amazing uh, resume he had. Uh, Binghamton University, New York, of course, like you said, the University of Central Florida. He was in Zurich, New York, uh, Barcelona. He did some teaching, uh, Lausanne. Uh, no idea where that is, but yeah, he was uh, he was definitely a big guy. Oh yeah, no, it's one of those when when I met him, he was you know one of the you know, greatest living mathematicians at the time. He was 84. So, you know, again, when you get 84, you you end up having a good chain behind you. But I had no idea how important he was when I met him. So mm-hmm. now we and can go were, on. You go weren't ahead. like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. It's not the same plot, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was close to that one. And I think, <laughs> you know, I met him not, you know, only a couple of years after Goodwill Hunting. So, I, you know, that that could have been part of what was on his mind. It wasn't on mine because I hadn't watched Goodwill Hunting yet at that point. Uh, okay. But no, no, it's just as, as he sat there and said, he, he had never had anybody just walking off the street that was able to learn something like category theory before. And because I was able to, he, as a math teacher, felt compelled that he needed to try to teach me. If I, if I could understand it, he felt compelled to teach me. And Again, he's impressive because one of those great links for me in those six degrees of separation since, like, he knew Einstein and such. Yeah, yeah, World War II, all those guys working together or knowing of each other. It makes sense. You know, especially after, or after you survive it, you're in one of those survivors clubs. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go to slide six. Media portrayals. And yes, of course, you have the movie, The Imitation Game. Yeah, and he was uh, he was a supporting character in there. And uh, again, he was the youngest one. And pretty much everybody sat there and said that he was the brightest of, of all of the code breakers, the youngest and the brightest. And, uh, you know, the character that he played in the movie was very, very different than the real Peter Hilton. Because he was not like like shy or <laughs> or yeah he didn't have a brother who was in the uh, <laughs> who was on a ship and you know the, again they took a lot of liberties with the uh, the story they always do that in movies it's yeah. as long as you know that you're expecting that in a movie as opposed to that this is what actually happened you're good and again I enjoyed it it was it was nice to see nice to see him up on the you know him getting some portrayal up on the screen because. Mm-hmm. That was one of the issues with those code breakers is they just were not able to get a lot of recognition because of all the secrecy behind it. 
Exactly. And here he was trying to break the code Enigma. That was the German code, right? Well, Enigma was the one that, that they had. I don't know if they had broken Enigma by the time uh, Dr. Hilton had gotten there or if that one. But the one they were looking on later were, were Tunny and Fish, which were more complicated codes. Enigma was the one that they were using early on. And to a large extent, the Polish had uh, broken Enigma. And uh, they had a, th there was a big meeting between the, uh, the Polish uh, code breakers and the British ones where the, the, the Polish handed off their work on Enigma because they felt that there was going to be the uh, invasion, the, uh, you know, Russia and, uh, the, and the Nazis were going to invade Poland and they wanted to get that there. That ended up becoming part of the, the basis for uh, the whole Bletchley Park and that they ran with it from there, too. Yeah, I love that about history. It's always, oh, man, Hitler uh, invaded Poland, and then you forget that uh, Russia <laughs> invaded Poland from the other side. Both two fascist countries were doing what they were doing, being fascist. Well, yeah, they, well, they had an agree. That I think they had the borders worked out before the first tank rolled <laughs> over there. You're gonna, we're going to get this part. You're going to get that part, and everybody's going to be happy except the Polish people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but Roosevelt and Churchill weren't decrying the Russians. Well, they 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 bitched about the Bolsheviks before the war, but then they kind of tapped around Stalin. <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So moving on. Moving on. Let me see. Imitation game. Yeah, uh, for the audience, it's a, it's a good movie. I enjoyed it. And yeah, very tragic. It's very bitter at the end. It's one of those, how the hell did it happen? But that shit happens all the time. Yep. Now we got some quotes. Yep. Yeah, but these these are so totally him. Yeah, you know, mathematics should be fun. Mathematics is for lazy people. <laughs> yeah, and adaptability to change is itself a hallmark of successful education. And here he's talking about you know no wonder that Churchill described this effort, the British code breakers working at Bletchley Park, as Britain's secret weapon. A weapon far more effective than the buzz bombs and the rockets that Werner von Braun designed for a German victory. A weapon absolutely decisive in the judgment of many in winning the war for the Allies. And along that front, the estimations I've seen is it shortened the war by about two years and saved about 14 million lives. Oh. And uh, computation involves going from a question to an answer. Mathematics involves going from an answer to a question. And the last one is, it's a wry commentary on the value system of the United States that one speaks there of teacher training and driver education. Hmm. I don't know what to say about that one. What is he saying? <laughs> well, well, they should educate teachers, right? And then you're uh, driving is a training. Exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, I get it. <laughs> You'd have gotten along well with, with Dr. Hilton Vance. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> that was one of the jokes he told. Uh, I took a uh, 
theory of everything class. It was a combination class that he taught along with a, a physics uh, teacher who had uh, worked with Brian Greene. And uh, they put together this one and went into group theory and all that one. And he told a joke at the beginning of the class. And he sat there and said that he was going to split the difference between America and Britain and spell program you know, <laughs> P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M. And it's like <laughs> nobody laughed. And it's like I had to chuckle. It's like, oh, they just they, they don't even understand why that's funny. <laughs> no, that's a good joke. That's a good joke. It's that wry British sense of humor. Yep. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And the last one is a list of his, his awards. Let's see. Awards for Dr. Peter Hilton. Yep. You know, and uh, some of the highlights there that there for me is the, uh, the, the conference in 83 for his uh, 60th birthday where they had an entire conference just for his birthday. And it was like, he actually, he invented the field of uh, homotropic algebra. And uh, again, he was, he was actually pretty important. Again, stuff that nobody ever even learns about it existing at all. But that's kind of the fun part sometimes. It is. There's so much in history, so many uh, interesting, uh, and impactful characters it's always good to learn about them instead of the the usual uh big guns but then sometimes that's what uh, hollywood does right it will focus on somebody like that uh, here and there and get down the rabbit hole and it's very cool yeah no and it's you know i, I appreciate your chance to uh let, let me uh air out some of uh, his interesting history for his 100th birthday and Give him a toot, toot the horn a little bit for him. And uh, now I'm ready to, to talk about the code breaking and stuff with the questions people have now that uh, covered who, who the man was. Mm -hmm. so. And when did you lose? Did you lose? Did you keep in touch with him? Oh, yeah. No, I, I kept in touch with him. He died in 2010. Um, you know, not as much, not as much after I finished my project. And uh, I finished my project in 2004 with him. And that 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 was that that was a good. That was a good experience. And, you know, the, some of the stuff he, he talked, you know, that, that we spent together, it's like he, uh, you know, he worked me through Cantor's diagonal proof because I kept having problems with that. And I kept remembering him. He just, would just sit there and smile at me and goes, you'll figure it out. And it's like eventually I'd beat my head up against the wall until I did, you know. It was very interesting to talk to him. We usually spend about the first five minutes of our sessions in the spring of 2003 talking about the upcoming invasion of Iraq with Bush administration. Mm. And uh, again, with the, it was all that that conversation was always within the, uh, you know, the, the overarching context of he knew about true tyrants like Hitler and invasions and things like that. And we were both uh, like, you know, this is just, this is some sort of farce going on there. And uh, yeah, no, and it would be, 2004 was when I finished up my project. And it's like I delivered him. It's sort of like, you know, finishing up my dissertation and stuff. And after a few weeks, you know, he handed it back to me and he, he delivered the shit sandwich there. If, you know, I should <laughs> assume you guys know what that is. That's no, where you get that. That, that's where you give good news, and then you give the bad news, and then you give the good news. 
because you don't want to just leave with the bad news. So it's it's, it's something <laughs> my you know, I was explained to me and that that's the corporate term for it is the shit sandwich. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard of that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's like he, he sat there and he, he started with, you know, with the, with the exception of a few typos and some, some poor word choices that I had. I had 100% proved what I had set out to prove, and I successfully completed it. Then he criticized me because I used uh, proof by contradiction in three of my proofs, which he sat there and said that was the lazy way out. And he saw constructive proofs that I could use that would then qualify my my uh, my mathematics under Broward's intuitionist math rather than the more uh, more uh, liberal uh, sets of uh, assumptions. And, you know, I explained to him that, you know, yeah, I can I, I can see that the, where that could happen. But I needed to get it done because he was leaving UCF in 2004 and my son was being born in August. So I just needed to get it done. And, you know, the, the last part of it was he sat there and he broke out into a huge smile. And he sat there and said that, you know, my my work was brilliant. Uh, it was unlike any mathematics he had ever encountered. It was beyond his understanding and capabilities, oh. and he had, it had absolutely no real-world applications that he knew of, which is the highest compliment somebody can give a piece of mathematics. <laughs> a mathematician can give a piece of mathematics. There's no use for this. It's just pure math. <laughs> Only in the Pleroma or Plato's world of ideas would this work or something. Yeah, one of my professors oh, uh, told me something like that one time. <laughs> I, I was in class and I said, wow, I could really use this. This is what? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Mathematics is for its own sake. Oh, and that's exactly it. And Miguel hit it out, out, out of the park. You're dealing with Plato's forms when you're doing math. <laughs> you know, that, that they're, trans that they're transcendent. They have no, you know, no connection to reality. Because that's, that's the whole inexplicable use of mathematics. Why should it be useful? But at the same time, it's not static. That's a, that. That's why it wouldn't work in Plato's world of ideas. Well, and that's the debate among mathematicians: is are they the, are they the Platonists or is right. it, is it? Yeah, I've heard you know, that argument. Yeah. Well, mathematics is like a whole world. You know, you build up an algebra or something like that or some sort of system. You start with the axioms, you build it all up, and there are laws that emerge and so forth. It's, it's like world building, you know? Oh, exactly. And that was where my project was at, was dealing with, you know, foundations of mathematics where you're dealing with the various different axioms for sets or, or you know, just how you're sorting the things. And I was trying to, you know, one of the things was I was trying to explore where I saw Cantor had an had an odd definition for a set thing and I would basically he combined two operations into one and I basically parsed those apart and showed how they were basically two different uses of the same apple again I'm getting into highly technical stuff so <laughs> yeah math ain't my thing yeah you know what I want to know I want to know if Dr. Hilton uh what he thought of computing because by you know close to the end of his life the computers were pretty much commonplace did he make use of them or was he a paper and pencil guy till the end or uh, how did he interact with computers if at all um he didn't do a lot of his actual math on computers because a lot of his stuff was too abstracted for that you know he I, he didn't 
he wasn't opposed to it and he definitely saw some uses on it. It was, again, he wasn't a big fan of them using the, the brute force method, brute force method for proving things where you just basically take every example possible, check it out and see if it works or not. The Monte you Carlo know? method. <laughs> well, again, it's how they cracked, crack passwords that they really need to. You try every combo password you right. can until one of them breaks. The shotgun. <laughs> You know, because part of it is, is there's always, you know, his approach was there's always going to be some underlying reason why things are the way they are. And it's just, it's up to the mathematics, you know, if, if there's mathematics, it's up to you to tease out the pattern and figure it out. And now we're getting back to the whole code breaking thing, because that's the essence of the code breaking. Where you, you have the... Don't you always say that math is just a language, a model to describe reality? It's not reality? Something we came up with? Well, Vance? it's a model. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it, it's, yeah, that's what I say. It's, it's, it's the universe. Here's what I say. The universe isn't mathematical. Mathematics is a language by which we model the universe. Right. Because there are many different mathematical constructs that you could superimpose on obser observations, you know, in, that you see in the universe. And what we see is only partial anyway. Look at, look at, you know, how many dimensions does, you know, string theory have now? 11, you know, and then they have a problem. And so they add another dimension. You know? <laughs> Pretty soon <laughs> yeah, next solution. year. <laughs> we need another dimension. We're stuck with our yeah. formulas. Uh, like we lost uh, Graham there for, for a second. He'll he'll be back. He's in another okay. dimension. Yeah, there dimension. he is. Okay. Uh, yeah, we lost you to another dimension there. Yeah, yeah, no, I went to the twelfth dimension apparently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. String theory, I, I, it, it's 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 eleven dimensions, and I was going to say the overarching one now is M theory, where they showed that basically. Uh, all of those various versions of string theory are the same, are, are basically different formulations of the same theory from a higher dimension. So, so it's uh, either, I forget the, the details right now, it's either string theories are 10 and the M theory is an 11, or string theories are 11 and M theories in, in 12. But it's, yes. uh, it's similar, like with that, similar like what they found out with quantum mechanics with the, uh, Heisenberg wave function versus the the matrix modeling that um, was being done as well, and it, they they were like two different approaches. One was the the matrix one was doing it from a particle standpoint, and they proved that mathematically they were different. They were the same theory expressed in two different mathematical structures, and that was where the Copenhagen one came around. Is nobody could explain why why that would be. And that's where they had the uh, the whole particle wave and all that sort of fun uh, conundrum stuff there. Well, let me ask you this, Graham. Uh, obviously, these uh, genius, geniuses or titans of uh, physics and math that came into the uh, early middle of the 20th century. I mean, what we have today with these reductionist materialists, they're like ants compared to these giants, including Dr. Peter Hilton, uh, tells us how we're devolving as a species or as a culture, because again, this is hermetic learning. Uh, in other words, it comes from somewhere else probably. And we know like Einstein, Heisenberg, Niels Bohr were very influenced by 
uh, Jewish mysticism, Eastern thought, Taoism. They like to meditate. They really like to do these things to keep their to expand their minds. Uh, uh, what about uh, Peter Hilton? Was he into anything like that besides, or was he, like you said, the hedonism was what got him out? Dionysus, <laughs> with that visualization, uh, you know, uh, talent of his, he might have been able to, you know, receive things from outside. You know, yeah, no, he was definitely into meditation. Again, he may not have yeah. even called it that, and he was not particularly religious. He was pretty much pure truth. And that's one of those things is religion tends to put group priorities over the truth. And so. Well, what about philosophy, though? You know, in other words, didn't he wonder, you know, where it all came from, where the universe came from? Was he a traditional, oh, yeah, Big Bang guy and just kind of went along with the physicists? Or did he ever think about that? Or was he too immersed in his mathematical reality to even think about it? Well, I think he was, I was going to say, I think Miguel hit on a big key feature there about the difference between these people and the current crop is materialist. Right. Most of those, most of those people back then, they weren't actually materialists. You know, many of them, you know, you had some dual du duology ones and, you know, for the most part, it was, it was more of a, it was matter was something that was being produced from something more, more primitive. And, you know, I think that's some of where, where Hilton was is, you know, again, he was probably similar where you're at, Vance, where it's us parsing the world is what's creating the mathematics and the matter and all. Right. It's not that the, the, the matter is in and of itself inherent. And that's where a lot of these people are is as soon as they decide that, the, again, it's sort of the being becoming. It's, you know, matter is a being and that they it, that's all they're working on and they lose track of the becoming at that point. So... Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, awesome. Uh, yeah, thanks for the super chat there, uh, Mr. Occult Fan. I don't have a question. Chester, thank you for the super chat. Hope you're doing well. Uh, a couple of people were asking what I was drinking. No, this is not beer. This is <laughs> Sioux City Sarsaparilla. I've always wanted to say Sarsaparilla all my life. I Sarsaparilla. Sarsaparilla here. <laughs> it made with cane sugar. It's root beer, guys. <laughs> Just root beer. So uh, it's really good root beer, too. Sioux City root beer. And, uh, yeah, hope everybody's doing well. Well, I wanted to, uh, before we maybe take some questions or talk about the code breaking or the Nazis themselves, uh, maybe a little announcement. Uh, Graham is going to be joining the virtual Alexandria. He's going to be creating some extra content from his amazing research and how he's uh, moved mountains and, and on Reddit uh, for AM Byte. This will include a sort of a, a bi-weekly content thing, which he will expand in a second, but it's going to be mm. awesome. It will include audio, reading materials on a plethora of subjects. And again, this is a solution I'm coming up with, as many of you know. The show has been just growing. Uh, it really exploded right at the pandemic. That's when I said these are Gnostic times. People want the, the Gnostic idea of simulation and archons and inner worlds and all that just really resonated. And this podcast exploded. Very blessed. But recently it's been like, it's only it's growing so much, but the support has been uh, has been dying off. And it's been, a, it's been an issue. Uh, well, 
taking care of the overhead. So I've uh, been talking to Graham and others to sort of uh, get it more connected. And I know I had like a, a friend call the other day. He's like, well, of course you got more, you're got you growing because you're putting out more podcasts. And I'm like, aha, you are right, but you are wrong. Because even when you look at the metrics, the uh, views per show has been growing. Or what's the other metric that's important? Uh, the amount of time, if you go to YouTube, other places, uh, the amount of time, you'd be surprised. Most people don't finish your podcast, so you're always trying to get it as much. And the viewing time for the podcast has also increased. So I'm thinking of ways, solutions to perhaps uh, grow the support and some and their support has grown and I really appreciate it. But we want to continue again. I uh, like everybody else. I worry about paying my bills at the end of the month. I am far. I live a pretty uh, bohemian lifestyle and I pretty much keep everything pretty affordable. There are tiers for example patreon where you all you have to do is pledge three dollars a month or red circle you can pledge 4.99 a month uh, even as vance we have not raised the prices since before the pandemic i think we might be the yeah. only organization in the whole planet earth that has not raised the price because again it's not about the money i want to the connection the gnosis but again, it's just nice to be able to take care of uh, overhead and be able to invest in uh, very cool stuff and to keep the content uh, coming because we need this Gnosis more than ever. So I'm going to get off my code box and uh, <laughs> Jesus, you must uh, pray and give me your money in the name of Jesus Christ. <laughs> like Robert, uh, was it Oral Roberts and those guys? Like, if you don't give me a million dollars, I'll die. No, it's not like that. It's not like that. Um, Jesus Christ. Uh, well, Grandma, so I spoke a little. Tell the audience what you're going to be providing. Very excited. Yeah, no, I'm excited, too, because uh, it's been a while. I haven't done any uh, new snippets in a while, and I have probably a couple hundred or so in various stages of completion there. And if people are familiar with my writing from Reddit and that one, where a snippet is, a, I describe it, it's, it's, it's not bunked, it's not debunked, it's just sort of, it's a creative writing piece that I do off of my research, and it's basically in the... Uh, in, in a, a gonzo spiritualism, gonzo journalism style, much like Hunter S. Thompson, very, very pataphoric. I describe it as it needs to be at least three quarters baked in a nice, crunchy, tasty uh, candy coating that people can enjoy. And if I can't get, if I can't fit those two pieces together, the snip is not ready yet. But it's been a, you know, it's been a couple of years since I've gotten any new ones out. And I, I'd like to get, I've been wanting to get some new ones. And when I heard you were having, you know, just, just un, inexplicable, you know, you know, revenue situations happening, it's like, oh, this may dovetail together. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to put out one every other week, sort of do a snippet Sunday sort of thing. Every other week, put out a, a, a new, new snippet. And then probably also do a uh, like like a, a Q and A on the other alternative uh, Sundays, and I'm going to do the, do a lot of that via a, a Discord server that I would run, and all of that would be you know as part of your Patreon, and we need to figure out exactly what what levels it, you know different things would be happening at, but I'm excited to uh, you know get some more of my content out there, get some new content, and uh, again I've got some really exciting stuff going on. 
Awesome. Yes. And this will be also for AB Prime, Patreon. Again, not much. And you will get even extra. Don't forget the Finding Hermes group where we meet every two weeks and I do presentations on Gnosticism. We have a Q&A. Uh, I need to mention it more because I had one listener like, I didn't even know this existed. And I've been a subscriber all these years about Finding Hermes. But then again, one of those things that I really do focus on the content, on the Gnosticism. If you guys listen to my intros, I don't talk much about this. I'm always like, let's get this shit out. Let's get this Gnosis out to the world. And what are some things, Graham, you uh, are going to be discussing? Maybe wet the beaks of the audience. Well, there's one that, that that we've talked about that that we have go, coming up here that I'd like to do in June, the uh, 50th anniversary of a Secretariat's Belmont win, and doing that one as an autopsy of a miracle, oh. because it's basically I, I'm going to break down the you know some of the uh, the spiritual science behind uh, the, that event and how miracles happen. Mm. You know, more, more, more beyond that one. I definitely have the uh, some of my uh, emerging theory of the origins of Christianity and everything. It's a uh, very much very, a. Yeah, uh, you told me that. That's really awesome. Yeah. yeah, they call it right now, for lack of a better term, the dynastic wave theory. Yeah, where it's, it's completely you know, new uh, audience and completely in a very good evidence somewhere that's beyond or hasn't been addressed yet. So I'm excited about that one, and that one then will definitely be a series of a uh, series of unveils on that one as we we work our way through that. And again, it's just that that's scratching the surface. A snippet that I have almost done is the uh, the tombs of Alexander the Great, where I trace you know what, all the different tombs that he has and wh where his body has been and that sort of situation. Oh and, yeah, that one's amazing. Yeah, you showed me that. Yeah. Wow, he's traveling around even after he died, huh? <laughs> oh, he, that was exactly what happened. He died in Babylon, and then they basically they uh, they stuck him in honey because that's what they used to preserve people back then. And uh, they built that giant catafact for him, and they were going to take him back to Macedon. And then Ptolemy in Egypt just decided, nope, I'm going to body snatch Alexander and drew him back down to Egypt. Just wow. lots of fun, traveling man. No, yeah, even things, even death didn't stop them. No, no, nothing stops them. These things are these things are created. Yeah, somebody was correcting people. It's not Macedonia. It's Macedonia. I'm like, oh my god. It's like people if you dare to spell Kiev with an I instead of a Y, you know, or something. Or if I say Cybel, oh. they go, it's Kybel. <laughs> Peking and Beijing, and you know, <laughs> I know, I know. that still drives me nuts. And then I've today. heard Kybele as well. Kybele, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, got busy bodies today, even in the esoterica. Can't win. Everybody wants yeah. to be right about something. Bombay, <laughs> Mumbai, that's another one. Oh, my God. Yeah, thank you. That, yeah. yeah, I was trying to think of that one. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. At least we don't call Kenya or Rhodesia anymore. That's good. But... um. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. Well, it should be good. And again, uh, please support. So why don't we talk a little about code breaking? Here's a little question somebody had. Uh, do you see that? Does Graham know if Peter Hilton's A Mathematical Tapestry is worth getting hold of? No, definitely. Definitely. That uh, 
I was going to say, there's a video out that he did for the uh, mathematical, uh, the London Mathematical Society in 96. It's an hour that he did. It's called New Wine and Old Bottles. And he breaks down the Fibonacci series and a whole lot of the math behind it. And it's it's just a wonderful presentation. It shows just what a great mathematical teacher in mind he is. And, you know, I, 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 a lot of the stuff he did with... Uh, Dr. Peterson as well is she, she was, she did a lot. She was his uh, major collaborator towards the, you know, last part of his life and a lot of it with mathematical education. Their stuff is wonderful. Well, there you have it Carswell. I hope that answers your question. Uh, Vance, do you have any question about questions blah, 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 about code breaking and Nazis, uh, anything? Well, yeah, I'm. I had. My, here's another computer question. Uh, I know they had. Uh, they used a lot of computers, and in fact, I'm going to switch real quick. And uh, um, you know that movie, A Beautiful Mind. It, does that have anything to do with all of this? No, no. Beautiful Mind was uh, that was um, Prisoner Dilemma and, and Game Theory, and. Um, that 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 was a totally different different area of mathematics than than what they were dealing with with the World War Two. No, what they were dealing with with in World War Two on the computing front was uh, they were building the. Uh, I want to say the Colossus was the first programmable computer where they could go back in. Before that, everything was hardwired. Yeah. And, no, there, and there's a lot of. Go ahead. I was going to say beautiful mind was that's like iterated uh, prisoner dilemma and things like that one. The closest thing that would get to from World War Two is uh, I learned this one in my economics classes was that my uh, mathematical modeling teacher when we were learning uh, matrix modeling of the economy. He explained to me why Hogan's Heroes had the uh, joke about blowing up the ball bearing factories. And that was because when they did the matrix modeling in World War II of the German economy and uh, war production, the most critical feature was the ball bearing plants because it's such a specialized machinery in order to produce them. And they're used in every sort of machine, vehicle, and everything else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that as well as oil were the two things that the Germans were most critical on. And you can see what the, what the Allies targeted their bombings on. And they made a joke out of that in Hogan's Heroes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, how, how about uh, the number stations? Did they, uh, in, did they try to break the codes from the number stations? That's been an enigma quote unquote no pun intended for a long time all you know the shortwave stations where they um, just some some announcer starts you know mentioning all these different numbers and it goes off around for hours and hours people think it's spy spy codes and that must be some sort of code definitely i i don't have any good answer for what those number stations might be Again, spy code makes sense. Who's spying on who is another one. On the spy ones that I, I, I found interesting stories was back in uh, World War II was Lucille Ball, where she busted a spy ring because she had her fillings in there. She was picking up some Japanese shortwave radios on her drive into the studio. <laughs> I just read that on Facebook today. Oh my God. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> Turned out to be a secret Japanese transmitter, you know, that was operating uh, underground somewhere. 
on her way oh, from the studio. Hilarious that you just read that today, Vance. I, I know. I did. No kidding. No, Lucille Ball. So, yeah, she did something good. And, of course, her other great feat. Well, Star Trek. Career, Star Trek. She was a uh, produced Star Trek. So, God bless her. You know who else was a big fan of Star Trek, Vance? Elvis. Ooh. He really? Yeah, yeah. In fact, he almost got to visit the set. Uh, who's the creator? Gene Roddenberg. Right. Elvis kept asking, I want a tour, man. I'll give me a tour. But it never <laughs> worked through. But yeah, he loves Star Trek. <laughs> I, I had no idea. I had good taste. Mm -hmm. I said, I did not know that about Elvis. I did get to tour Graceland once. And that that's an impressive house. That's my goal. Once I get this book out, I need before it. I need before it comes out or after. Go visit Graceland. See what's up there. Do they take you to, to the bathroom where he uh, spent his last moments? Now, now that they, they, they keep most of the uh, most of the, the the private areas off limits, like the bedrooms and all. You get to see more of like the living rooms and you know that the. the uh, the farm they they have horses and you know where the the, uh, the barns and where they have all the Elvis's jumpsuits set up and they have his planes there and his cars that are in a different building and they got a nice little complex. It was definitely worth worth the trip. It was an enjoyable day. Mm, very cool. Very cool. <sighs> oh, well, that probably definitely has to rooms, he loves spy stuff. He probably had, uh, you know, secret tunnels and so forth between rooms. He could sneak around. Mm -hmm. What about that, Graham? You think uh, think he had secret passages in, inside Graceland? Um, actually, I'd have to say no, since Graceland was built before Elvis was there. I mean, I I would sit. I quite possible Elvis built something. You know, his own secret rooms. He had more than enough money to do anything he wanted, but I don't think it had him when he bought it, and he didn't build it all himself from scratch. Yeah, plus it was pointless. He always had a huge entourage of bodyguards and hanging on. I mean, that's why one of the reasons he was in the bathroom is because it really was the only time he could be alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? He always had somebody out there, hundreds of people sometimes, so. That's where, yeah, he died on the throne. In my book, I'm going to show that, yes, the king died on his throne, but it was actually a whole funeral rite. What he was wearing, what he was reading, it was all it was all orchestrated. For what? We don't know. Lots of conspiracies, let's put it that way. Uh, Always. Yeah. Including the one that he didn't die. <laughs> that's yeah, the that's a big one. one. Well, I think there's a lot, and I'll, I'll show it in my book, but uh, the one that really nobody's ever been able to figure out is his death certificate is in his own handwriting. And I mean, professionals have shown the two, like Elvis writing and his death certificate. Or like, how the hell did he write his own death certificate? Because he faked his death, right? That's, huh? that's the implication. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I can't say I'm, a, I'm agnostic, but there's is a, that's one of the weird things there. But uh, anyway, let's get back nasty. to... Uh, yeah, exactly. He was very nasty. Uh, why don't we get into some uh, code on the Nazis? So, Graham, in your estimation, do you think the Nazis were as occult influence as people have said, or is that kind of overplayed? I mean, people say it was probably, uh, I don't know, Himmler and a few others. Uh, 
No, I would say that the the, the core of the Nazi party was very, very occult oriented, especially the, uh, you know, what was left over after the Night of Long Knives purge. Yeah, no, because you had the whole blood plague from the right, you know, from the uh, beer hall push, you know, where you had the blood soaked flag. And that was something that 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 was used in occult stuff. And it was very much an an outgrowth of the whole, um, you know, Vril society. And that they were a lot of the groups that ended up being involved with uh, the Nazis. And Dietrich Eckert was basically one of the uh, the big occult minds you know, behind the, the Nazi party as it went from the, just the workers and added Hitler and became the Nazis as we know them. And what about Hitler? What about Hitler himself? Do you think uh, some say he was just, he used whatever he could do to get whatever he needed to get? Well, yeah, there was that one. And to a large extent, you have to view any of those leaders as in a bubble well, they don't always know what's going on. It's like he was kept ignorant of stuff that his inferior, like Himmler, would not tell him stuff that he didn't want Hitler to know. And so he was such a he was charismatic. He was a psychotic madman, destroyed millions of lives. But again, how much he knew about everything was was a different story. He was basically the front man for the band. <laughs> Great. <laughs> What a man, too. Yeah, it's uh, and uh, the code was the the Nazi code was just was this a normal thing in war? Was it just so advanced they really had an advantage over the Allies? Well, I was going to say codes have been a, is a part of war. You're going back to Julius Caesar with the Caesar cipher, where right. you move the alphabet three three letters over, and. Uh, no, they, they had a new one, and it was with the machines, where they were able to basically generate a new key via an algorithm. And where before there was a lot of you had to have a static key, this became a mobile key that was being based off an algorithm on the machine. And that was a big, huge advancement. And they didn't think that there would be any way to break it, you know, abstractly. They thought you would have to have another machine in order to duplicate it. And that was, you know, that was their big error that, and again, they'd make mistakes of, you know, repeated letters would often trigger the machine in funky ways that they were able to pick up on in the code. And the worst ones were when they would send two subsequent messages using exactly the same sequence of dial settings. And, you know, it's little mistakes like that, which made the big difference in breaking the codes. And uh, around what year was this? 40, what, 43, 44, they broke it or before that? Well, they broke Enigma. I, like I said, I don't know for certain on Enigma. It was, it was 42 or, or, uh, 42 or even before that, that they did because it was before Poland. I think Poland was 39. So they probably had that one. And it was, they had more advanced ones at the time and they kept pushing that one. And towards the end of the war, they realized that they had to, they earlier only reset the settings on the dials. Like the one dial was every quarter. The other one was like every week, and it was only like in 44 that they went to daily resettings. So they knew something was up, but they didn't, you know, it was too late because it had been broken. 
the big thing was the uh, the computers being able to test this, being able to decode the settings for the machine that quickly. And once they had decoded the settings for the machine, that allowed them to decrypt the messages quickly. So it's a matter of the that's where the computers came in is was being able to process the and you know basically reverse engineer what they had set their their dials for that day. And, and I want to say it, was, uh, it shortened the war. What are some examples? Because I mean, by forty four, uh, the Germany was in a lot of trouble. They had way overplayed their hand. They were out of resources. Uh, things were going south. I mean, how did the what advantage did it give? Do we have examples? Oh, I don't. I don't know on any specific examples of that one. The general idea is you would know where different convoys were going. You'd know. You basically, it's like you're able to see exactly what the other person's doing, and it's a you're trying to, you know, take advantage of that without them letting them know that you know. Uh -huh. And that's where that's where it's tough to come up with examples. And again, that yeah, that's the uh, secret. It's all spycraft. Yeah. Again, one of my favorite ones from World War II spycraft was that man with no name, where they basically they took a corpse that you know that that nobody knew what the name was, and they gave him a fake ID as this intelligent agent, and had him wash up on uh, you know behind enemy lines, and feed him all full of like false information and stuff, and. Uh, you know, to just give a total canard to the people. And again, all the sorts of spy spy craft that they uh, went into in World War II is just amazing. Yeah, well, that's a tale as old as time. I mean, some say Pythagoras was a spy for the Greeks in the Persian court. <laughs> really? Uh, Heraclitus, and too, in the Persian court. And it goes over and out, Swedenborg. I mean, there, there's something about occultism and spy craft that will always be joined because they the two ways of seeing through normal reality and understanding the human mind, decoding reality and all that. They just work together. And of course, governments are always using some sort of magic in their spy craft. So they know what's going on. And uh, I mean, I'm sure we know what, that the Russians and the Americans were doing uh, the staring at goats, what do you call it? Remote viewing. But that were they, that was something after world war two, right? Graham? Oh yeah, no. Yeah, that, John D. is a good one. John D. was a spy. Yeah, I was going to mention John D. John D. was uh, Queen Elizabeth the first got spy master. You know, and cryptographist. Yep, the original 007. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Now that the, go ahead. Yeah, did you say before that uh, they uh, they took a dead body and planted stuff on it and let it wash ashore as a um, as, you know with false information? Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of The Prisoner, but there was a sh one of the episodes of The Prisoner that's exactly what happened. There was a body that washed up with a radio on it. Oh yeah, remember that? Yeah, no, I'm a huge fan of The Prisoner. That that's one of the best shows ever on television, in my opinion. Yeah, you remember the episode then where the body washes ashore? Dance of the Dead, actually. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I like that it was a continuation, in theory, at least a secret agent man before right. that. Danger man. Yeah, that's yeah. a controversy. <laughs> Some people say yes. Some people say no. Some people said the prisoner was John Drake. Some people say no. 
It's amazing the Germans didn't make more use of computers in code breaking, or did they? You know, I'm, I mean, uh, Conrad Zeus was uh, very, you know, advanced in terms of the machines that he made in Germany during the war, but they didn't seem to use them. Um, not that I've read. What, what do you know about that, Graham? No, they seem to have gone more for the uh, the applications, like for the rockets, and you know that was one of the in, in, in Dr. Hilton's quotes where they went for the rockets and the impressive, uh, you know, planes and machines sort of approach, and they uh, they didn't. And in all honesty, if I remember right, they were getting most of their computing from IBM because there was a that IBM had big contracts with Germans and were doing a lot of the, uh, the the machines for the Germans. I'm not sure about that. I never read that. I know most of the IBM stuff uh, during the war was uh, punch card stuff. You know, I have to look that up though. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you know about the work of Conrad Zeus, but I actually saw a couple of his machines. There's a computer history museum in Mountain View, California that I was a docent for for a while and um, I used to give tours and the Zeus, one of the Zeus machines, I think it was a Z3, I'm not sure, but um, and that was one of the later ones, but the Z2 was uh, done in the uh, early 40s. So, uh, but it doesn't seem that he was really given much, uh, maybe the Germans were more mechanical, you know, they were hardware oriented, uh, you know. Yeah, no, that, that was the sense that I had. And no, I haven't, I'm not aware of Zeus's stuff. I was going to say, I don't know. There was the, uh, the the old grinder. I forget what they're called now. It's the alternative to the cat, to the uh, slide roll that would do calculations that way. It looked kind of oh, like a yeah. pepper grinder. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen one. Yeah. The computer history museum actually had one. In fact, a friend of mine that I used to work with uh, collects them. He had a, he one or two. Yeah, those are neat. I have I have an old log log slide rule that I keep around just because I've learned how to use them when I was a kid, and it's kind of cool to have. Yeah, I got mine too. The Kufel and Esser, right? Yeah, the K and E, K and E slide rule. I used to hang it up on my cube years ago, and I said in case of emergency, you know, <laughs> <laughs> power failure or something. Yeah, I wonder how Ch Chat GPT would handle it. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I don't know if it even knows about slide rules. What do you think about all this uh, this AI gold rush, Graham? What's going on? I mean, uh, as I'm telling people in other jobs and companies, I've been using AI for a while, but all of a sudden it just really hit the uh, public consciousness. It's Obviously, these things are an accident. Why are suddenly we have this deluge of AI software and solutions and all that? I was going to say, what all... Uh what always jumps into my mind is, you know, getting people to trust it, getting people to trust AI and use AI to think for them. Because that's one of the patterns I notice is there's a whole lot of trying to get people to do less thinking for themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I think that might be a trust because when I used AI, I mean, a while ago, I was the only person in my department who would use it. Everybody was afraid or whatever. I was like, you got to have the right attitude. It's treat it like your assistant, like it's Igor. Then it works well. You know the old saying: uh, the mind is a the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. It's the same thing with AI. Make it a part, put it down there, and it will work. I think my productivity has gone up like ten percent, but I know how to use uh, 
chat GPT and all those other things. I just uh, where we really need it is those damn touch tone uh, menus that you get. Like you call the drugstore or whatever. Press one if you want to talk to me. Press two <laughs> otherwise. All right, press one. Press one if you want the pharmacy. Press two if you want that. And then press and then five, 50 times later, you know, you're sitting there, your fingers falling off because you're pressing all sorts of buttons. If chat GPT, you know, or some other AI that could understand natural language could be on there, is that give me the pharmacy. Don't give me any crap. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's what I want AI to do. Yeah, I was going to say the big downfall that I know that from the AI people that they say with ChatGPT is there's no way to know it's telling you the truth. It's designed to sound convincing, but what it's actually saying may or may not actually be true because it's basically scanning the Internet and it could be pulling bad information instead of good ones to tell you. Garbage and in, that's garbage out. <laughs> The one place that a lot of people have sat there and said it's going to totally revolutionize things is for uh, computer coders mm -hmm. because it's so much faster for them to just tell one of those chat, you know, one of those chat, uh, chat GPT to do it and it'll split, spit out the code almost perfectly and it saves yeah. them so much time. Yeah, I've used that too. Yeah, for uh, HTML or CSS. It's like, bang, perfect. But yeah, it, I've I've caught it with many mistakes. I always double check. So, but what are you gonna do? This is the world we live in. This is the matrix. This is the world of code. There's always gonna be code. There's always gonna be simulation, and we continue to create models to decipher this reality. So, uh, unless uh, we, I uh, think we are at the end. Oh, Graham just got beamed up from to the Enterprise, but he is back. Unless uh, you have anything else to say, Graham, or anything you want to declare or admit that you are Iron Man, uh, we can probably wrap <laughs> things up. No, no, I wish I had that house. That was a sweet house. <laughs> No, no, it's been a wonderful to be on here, Miguel, and uh, looking forward to next time and uh, helping you out with, with uh, your Patreon and all that one and getting all some more snippets out to people. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be very educational, people. It's uh, You're going to learn so much, and uh, we're going to have some good chats on all these topics behind the scenes, so check it out. So for the audience, thank you very much for being there. Some cool comments. I know it seems a, a little away from the Aeon Byte uh, typical shows, but as I sometimes say, variety is the spice of Gnosis, and uh, this seemed like it was a good thing to do for various reasons that we've discussed. And yeah, in a couple of days, we'll have David Block discussing Belial, and other metaphysics. Uh, so I guess uh, first, Vance, thanks for keeping us company in this code. No problem. Actually, I have to announce that this entire program was a secret code. And if you can decode it, you'll know all the secrets of the universe. Mm, 42 there. Can I go now? <laughs> yeah, That's you have to decode the 42. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. All right. Well, awesome. Yeah. And I, I'm going to say again, Shash Perilla. Always wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, well, Graham, thanks as always for uh, joining us. And uh, we will talk uh, sooner rather than later. 
Yeah, Graham. Great hanging out with you. Fascinating stuff. As always. All right, everybody. Have a good rest of your Tuesday. And as I always say, write your own gospel, live your own myth. Hello and goodbye as always. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.